All right, welcome everybody on Facebook, on YouTube, and of course, all of you lovely people here live. Uh, one thing I didn't announce, two things. Monday nights, beginning August sec uh, 7th here, 6 p.m., we're starting a recovery group. It's gonna be led by somebody, not me, but all addictions are welcome. Whatever type you have, feel free to come and talk about how to overcome addictions through a relationship with the Lord. And then on Sunday, August 20th, we're gonna have our open water baptisms. We used to have heart in the parks. We're having a heart in the parking lot. And uh, we're gonna fill the font out here for anybody who wants to be baptized. And anybody can baptize, uh, whoever. And then we're gonna have a hot dog barbecue. That's 11.30 to 1.30 after um, our milk service. That's on Sunday, August 20th. All right. We covered verses 1 and 2 last week of Revelation 7 and pretty much covered verse 3 too, but let's hit on them really quickly. Let me reread. It says, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, talked all about this, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor the sea, nor on any tree. We talked about how those winds are destructive winds. The four corners of the earth are the... Hebrews saw the earth as unrolled flat even, that they didn't, they, they saw as actually four corners where the angels were holding the winds back. That's how they wrote of it. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. So the, fourth, uh, the fifth angel comes in and says, don't let the winds in on the earth yet and the land yet to wipe it out, to destroy what's going to be coming. And of course, I believe that was the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, other people, futurists believe that's the destruction of the whole earth that's coming soon. As soon as those angels are told to let go, then this will happen. Verse three, that, that fifth angel says, hurt not the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And again, we covered this last week. If you missed it, you can get it online. And I suggested based off biblical evidence, not just conjuring up hopefully out of our imagination, that the sealing in the forehead of individuals uh, was symbolic of the Jews anciently. They would have phylacteries and they would put the law in those phylacteries and they'd bind them to their forehead and that the word of God was on their forehead. And so now we have a fulfillment of that with the Holy Spirit sealing them in their minds. They've had renewed minds, and this is what that's talking about. It's all symbolic language. It's not literally psh, a mark put in the forehead. I believe it is just saying that the Holy Spirit is going out and making sure all who are going to be sealed to God by the Holy Spirit in their renewed mind will have that mark upon them. Now, is there some type of mark, actual mark that the angels would behold before they let the winds go that would protect those? I don't know, we can't say. Uh, other people have another, other views. In fact, John Stephen, our brother here who comes here physically, he said that it's the name of Jesus that is in the forehead of the individuals and he may be right on that, we, we can't say. So let's read on for our text today and actually covering quite a bit. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed 144,000. Huge topic in eschatology or end time studies. But listen closely to just what the text says. And I heard the number sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. 
And of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Tribe of uh, Nephtali were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000. Tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zabulon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. John adds at verse 9, after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude. So this is a different vision, which no man could number of all nations, kindreds, tongues, people, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in the white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might even unto our God forever and ever. Amen. So let's go back uh, and cover verse four where we are introduced to that magical, mystical number of 144,000. Uh, and I heard of them which were sealed, excuse me, John writes, and I heard the number of them that were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So uh, most of you know the Jehovah's Witnesses still maintain a belief that there are 144,000 elect people. If you meet a Jehovah's Witness and ask them, are you one of the 144,000? It's actually an ongoing discussion in their world. And most of them will say, no, no, but I knew someone who was. He was in our congregation. And how do you know? Well, he told me. And uh, so the, their, their mind, the 144,000 are elect people that are still being governed. As I said last week, we have in our midst, in fact, I have a patriarchal blessing copy in my Bible uh, that I was given this morning by Ray, his great-great-grandfather and his patriarchal blessing was told he was numbered among the 144,000. So we kind of have some royalty in our midst uh, with that. And uh, everybody wants to be part of the 144,000. They read that, we're literalists, we want it to be exactly what it says and true. So let's get into this a uh, bit more. Let's state the obvious things. First of all, John hears that the number is 144,000. Uh, he doesn't see them, it's communicated to him through a voice. Now that matters because the next vision he has, he sees the numbers. But in this one, he's told there will be 144. Uh, this number, 144,000, is equally divided among the 12 tribes, it seems equally divided, assigning 12,000 to each of them. So we have 12 tribes times 12,000, which is articulated in all those verses. So we get the number 144, boom. Not 144,001, not 139, 999, 144. You may see that number as literal. And most people being human, we love literalness when it comes to scripture. It makes for much more fantastic discussions around the campfire. So, um, I see them as representative. I don't see them as actual literal numbers. Uh, there are arguments for both sides. After all, there were 12 literal tribes, literally. One, two, three, count them, 12. So why wouldn't there be 12,000 from each tribe? Uh, 
Well, due to other parts in scripture, a thousand in Hebraic language is always representative of a number. It doesn't mean the number 1,000. So 12,000 is representative of a larger number, but it doesn't mean 12,000 exactly. The passage in the Old Testament, which we, we got the whole motorcycle club coming, Pizant's here, so I guess they're all following him. But we, uh, we hear that the Old Testament scripture says, God is the God of a thousand sheep on a thousand hills. Does that mean God is not the God of the thousand and one sheep on the thousand and one hills? Or does a thousand represent the whole number? So 12,000 means there's a portion of each tribe that are going to create this significant number. But it doesn't mean that it's the whole amount. It doesn't mean that it's literal. And that's just how I, I, I would teach that. So we also note that the number that would be sealed or said to be specifically named among the children of Israel. Now, if the number 12,000 is not literal, then how come I'm saying that the children of Israel and the 12 tribes are literal? I mean, they're both in the same verse. And what I'm doing is I'm saying that the number 12,000 isn't literal, but the 12 tribes are, and I think I'm wrong. You see, there's something wrong with the logic when someone can go through scripture and say, this is literal in this passage, but this is not. And that's what I'm starting to do when we talk about this. So quite frankly, it's sort of inconceivable that we would have this word literal, this word not, all the way through, and then it's up to everybody's personal decision about what they think, and then we have endless opinions. So is there something more significant in this number? First of all, 10 tribes of Israel by this time did not exist. They were the lost 10 tribes, meaning they were banished through bondage and they were lost completely to the world. No one even knew who they were. So we didn't have a literally 10 tribes to have 12,000 pulled out from to pick literally directly from them as if they were a group. There was only two tribes in existence when Jerusalem was destroyed. So um, therefore, if we're going to remain kind of honest, I think, and consistent, what John says in terms of literalness in name or number is far-fetched. I don't think it's literal in either sense. However, we have to ask, well, what are these tribes name by name representing if it doesn't mean them name by name? What are they a symbol of? First of all, the only ones to be saved in the chronological story of this book, as we go through it, and if we look at it chronologically, are those of the house of Israel who have received the mark in their forehead, which we determine from scripture is the Holy Spirit, the mark of the Holy Spirit of re renewed mind. Secondly, we are talking about Jews who converted to the faith Jesus, their Messiah, was born, he lived, he died, was resurrected, and he was promised to them. And so we know that among his brethren, there would be those who would be saved, who would choose because of the apostles' teachings of Christ, because of Christ's resurrection. They would avoid the destruction at the end times. So we know that it was among these converted Jews, and probably among them were a number of them that were from a tribe they weren't aware of and have that stamp in their forehead. They converted. 
So they were whom Jesus came for, and it is whom the apostles first preached to and garnered believers. It is whom Paul went to first every time he traveled in his epistles. He stopped at the synagogue. He was rejected at the synagogue, and then he went to the Gentiles. And so the other thing to consider is Paul talks about anybody who believed on Christ became a member of the house of Israel, became a son of Abraham, became Israel. So now we have Gentile converts in Asia Minor who Paul has reached. They've received the truth. They were pagans. They were heathens. They had no law. They are adopted into the house of Israel, but the question is to which tribe? Were they of, uh, of Asher? Were they of uh, Simeon? Were they of Judah, Levi? What tribe were the Gentiles when they were adopted into the house of Israel did they fall into? I think the scripture tells us here, interestingly enough, and we'll prove why in just a second. So third, we have to suppose that any Jew who converted did so, and whether they knew of what tribe they were from or not, they came to Christ. They had the seal in their forehead. God knew where they came from. He knew what tribe they were of. So this is how John is saying of the 12 tribes, we have a representational number that is being pulled from all of them to accumulate to this other representational number of 144,000. It would be so much easier to teach this as literal, that there were the 12 tribes and 12,000 from Dan, Dan isn't mentioned as we covered last week, 12,000 from Joseph who came out and that's what it was, just 12. And, and to teach it that way is easier, but it doesn't seem to make sense to me from what I can see of what scripture is saying. So because the number is representational, I can't help but believe the tribes are as well. And while there are some of every one, there is a sum that is unknown, but they're all from those 12 tribes, including the Gentile converts. They're part of this 144,000, okay? So, consider the number that were killed, 1,200,000 approximately in, in Jerusalem. And we have 144,000. We have 12,000 from every tribe saved. That's 1% of the number that were wiped out. So, that's interesting that there was about 90% wiped, 88% wiped out and then the other 12% remained and were saved. So it kind of gives us this insight into the number that would be saved. 144,000 if we take it literally or around that amount versus the number that were killed is few. 12,000 from each tribe is few compared to the numbers that the tribes were by this time. So when Jesus taught that straight as the gate narrows the way, few be there that find it, I think he was talking to them specifically and saying, not many of you guys are going to get it. And, you know, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've called to you and I, I would have gathered you as a, a mother chicken, but you would not listen to me. And that's why there was great weeping and wailing in, in Rachel because, um, the, the fall was going to come upon the many, and only the few would get it. And so 144,000 as a representational number is not a lot compared to the number that were wiped out. So uh, 
If we consider the Greek, it says the 140,000 came out of these tribes. And I'm going to uh, refer to a Greek scholar named Eliot, and he says this about this, that, that passage. He says, if you're probably not going to follow this because I didn't, and maybe one person in here will. When the preposition ek, or out of, stands after any such verb as sealed, between a definite number and a noun of multitude in the genitive, sound criticism requires, doubtless, that the numeral should be thus construed as signifying not the whole, but a part taken out from. So what, that, what he's saying, that Greek, uh, he's saying that of the 12,000, not the whole were taken out of to construe the 144, if I understand that right. We'll talk about that more. So let's go to verse 5 through 8, and I'm going to say it again just because we go verse by verse, and it's repeating pretty much the same thing. But notice the order here. Out of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Out of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Naphtali were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zabulon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. I believe that each portion of Christ's church would furnish a part and not the full 12, that it's out of that 12,000 a part because of the way the Greek reads from according to that scholar. And that would make the number not literal, but representational or figurative. Again, in other words, a selection of the true servants of God were created from the whole of the tribes of Israel. Now, who is mentioned first in that list? Uh, Judah is mentioned first. And Judah was not the oldest sons of, of the sons of Jacob. And there is no settled order in scripture of when or how the tribes are, are laid forth. But they are, the first four sons are almost always the first four sons in scriptural history. But Judah is never number one, ever. But suddenly we have Judah, the tribe of Judah, listed first here in Revelation. So let me just tell you, this is the order in Genesis. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, D uh, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, Benjamin. In the blessing Jacob gives, the order's changed. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, that's all the same, but then Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, Benjamin. And then in the blessing of Moses in Deuteronomy 33.1, a different order comes forward. Reuben, Judah is second there. Levi, Benjamin, Joseph, Zebulun, Issachar, Gad, Dan, Naphtali, Asher. And in that last order of uh, Moses' blessing, Simeon's missing. So we know in the order in Revelation, Dan is missing and Ephraim are missing. We know that Simeon's missing from the one in Deuteronomy. And we have a different order in the blessing of Jacob and a different order that we find in Genesis. So what is going on? Well, I'm, I'm not gonna go into it. It would take us for three weeks and you'll be so bored and I'll be bored even more teaching it. So, but just understand this. Suddenly here in Revelation, Judah is mentioned first. Um, 
In fact, if you look at Ezekiel 48.1 and Ezekiel 48.31 through 34, there are two listings of the 12 tribes and they're different with each other. So Judah never mentioned first. I personally would suggest, this game to me, I don't know what it's worth, but remember Paul was reaching out to Gentiles and Gentiles were being adopted into the house of Israel. By and through what? Their faith on whom? Jesus. And Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. That makes sense now that the largest number who are of the house of Israel are of the tribe of Judah by the mere fact that the Gentiles who believed and were saved from destruction in that age were adopted into the house of Israel through Christ. I've, I didn't read it, I don't know, but to me, I have no proof for it, but that makes sense now as to why we would have that order out of place in Judah being mentioned first, because almost always the firstborn is mentioned first, and, and often they will go to the pre, uh, preeminent um, tribe in the order. So uh, in terms of what actually is being described here in verses one through eight, different interpretations exist, of course. Obviously, from the exposition of the words and phrases given, it's obvious that we're looking at a series of events that are gonna include, one, there's an impending danger waiting over the world, really not over the world, over the earth. And it's going to bring in a fashion of wind that is going to blow everything apart. This is the context of what we're reading here. And there's a peace that's going on. That's the seventh chapter. We've read the first six seals opening in chapter six and great destruction was described in the sixth seal. But now we come to a time of peace before that's gonna happen. When we get to chapter eight, that all hell's gonna break loose, right? We know that these angels are holding back the destruction until they can go in and make sure everybody who is a believer has the seal in their forehead. Futurists, of course, are waiting for this to happen and have been waiting for this destruction to happen to the whole world for 2,000 years. Fulfillment, people, preterist people, I'm going to fulfillment now. Since someone told me that a preterist sounds like a guy who drives a school bus with a real shady character. Uh, so I'm going to fulfillment guy now and fulfillment guys say this when the angels let it go when Jerusalem was destroyed okay the tempest was restrained and um, and held in check by the angels and were not the when the tempest and wind was not allowed to come in until the angels were allowed a command was given until those who had received it uh, don't release the winds, a selection of either a specific or a representational number of people would have sealed in their foreheads. Again, I think symbolic of have the spirit of the word in their mind, their minds washed by faith. And this number is taken from the divisions of the professed, of the people who profess faith in God through Christ, uh, whether Jew or Gentile, in my opinion. Even though the 12 tribes are mentioned, Judah is mentioned first, so I think all the Gentiles who believed at that time and were of that area were saved as well and included. Um, and again, the futurists believe it's happening. The historicists say that this gathering that we're reading about is an ongoing cycle that has happened over the course of human history and will continue to happen through different wars. And there seems to be some merit in this thinking that there's a historical view of these themes reoccurring. God's holding back destruction on certain things until the elect 
are uh, protected and then he unleashes and lets it all go. And then of course the uh, idealists say this is a picture of spiritual redemption and has no basis in material fact. That's the idealist view of how to understand Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation. And of course the fulfillment is that, you know, uh, it's been done and happened at the destruction of Jerusalem where the believers would be saved through their faith by Christ's return and the unbelievers would receive judgment upon them and reap the whirlwind as the uh, Old Testament will talk about. Um, and of course, I simultaneously believe that the content that we're reading about here is a spiritual type or picture. So I do believe somewhat the historicist view that we do have reoccurring themes that will occur through uh, believers' lives. And that's why we can understand things that have happened in the course of Christian history of people being wiped out and people being saved and that going back and forth. But that's all conjecture. I just think God continues to draw and call all men to him by his Holy Spirit and that the grim reaper, the whirlwind, waiting at death to take people up is, is, is the individual thing we all face today. Those who are not found with the stamp of the Holy Spirit in their forehead, been washed by the word, having received Christ by faith, when they uh, are taken from this life by natural causes, natural death or whatever it might be, they will reap what they have sown and those who have received him by faith that have that stamp will receive the same safety that those in Jerusalem did who believed on Christ. All right, let's move on to verse nine. A whole new topic now. That's the 144,000. After this, uh, John says, I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations, kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne, before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palms in their hands. So we have the 144,000, which we make a huge deal of. To me, that applies to the destruction of Jerusalem and those who were saved at that time out of the uh, 1.2 million or so who were killed. I tend to read this as simply, after these things, meta tauta, I had another vision. After I saw this, uh, so we, if we're gonna add chronology to this, which gets tough, John is saying, after I had the vision of what happened here, I had another vision, and, and this vision sort, sort, sort of seems to occur in heaven, where before John heard of the 144,000, now he sees a, a, a vision in heaven. So he's transferred from looking at what was happening then to Jerusalem and the end times for the seven churches to be aware of to heaven now. And we can say it's in heaven because everything he's seen is before the throne of God. When he heard of the 144,000, we have no mention of the throne of God. So this was just like some information he was being given. And uh, it seems that the design of this second vision that he has here is to say there's hope for beyond the 144,000. John says, I saw these, they were specifically, there's a limited number, it's this figure. But then I saw around the, the uh, throne of God, he doesn't say I saw 144,000 souls dressed in white. He says, I saw a number that you can't count gathered around that throne. So instead of leaving us with the idea that just 144,000, which some churches really do focus on, 
a limited fixed number, as it were, that will be saved, the few to the whole population of the whole world, we are now given an entirely different impression by this next vision. <clears throat> the host of heaven is now described as innumerable. No man can count what I saw gathered around the throne of God, all dressed in white and all holding palms in their hands, which is a symbol of victory. That means the victory has been had. Now, again, this is a vision, so you know, he is seeing this as representational of something for us. Uh, he says, they were taken from all nations, all ages, all climes, all people, and they were all in triumphant glory. So I'm gonna say it as I see it. I believe it as I see it. We talked about Paul this morning who's saying I have good conscience before God. When it comes to teaching the word, I have a, a clear conscience before God. I teach what I honestly believe. Wrong, yes, but I honestly believe it. And I stand before God now saying, he knows. He read my heart, I honestly believe what I'm teaching. Wrong, yes, but I honestly believe it. There are times when we read about Jesus coming to earth and him saying when he came, don't go to anybody but the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, don't go to the Samaritans. He says to that one woman who's not a Jew, listen, he, he kind of says, you're just a dog. You know, and she says, yeah, but the dogs will take the crumbs that fall from the table of the master. He says, I haven't seen such great faith in all of Israel. So he kind of vets her of her faith. But they always, these things have always kind of bothered me as a non-Jew, when I read that Christ just came, and now as I've come to understand the Bible as being a history of them, it really is all about God's economy with and through the Jews to bring about salvation to them and to the rest of the world. So, and then when you read uh, things like Revelation chapter seven, and where it talks about the 144,000 out of just those tribes, you can stop there and think, what, what are we, chop liver? I mean, did he only care about them? And this attitude can be tempting if you allow yourselves to think that what Jesus did among his brethren, his Jews was only for their benefit because they were, or they are, however you want to put it, the chosen people, right? And we get this idea growing up in the church and hearing these things. Oh, the nation of the Jews, the house of Israel, they're his people, you know, and all, all these things. But we often forget the negative that his chosen people experienced as well. Um, factors that include the horrors of destruction that have fallen upon them throughout history as a people. Nightmare destruction. Going all the way back to the Babylonian captivity, all the way through the destruction of Jerusalem, going up to the world wars. I mean, they have as a people had their heads handed to them, literally, you know? And the dark punishment in Sheol, we don't ever think about that, that under the law, they all went to hell, really, until Christ came and they were under that covered place, which is the dark place. There was a paradise and there was a prison, but I would suggest few went to paradise, Abraham and a few other faithful of the saints. Uh, I don't know if even David went there. He could have gone to prison. Of course, that, that gave up its dead, but the nation of Israel was under Sheol. So, we can be glad that we weren't part of that scene because that was a terrible scene. That's why Christ came to liberate the captives and open up the, uh, the uh, prison doors to them that were bound. 
And the limit of 144,000 who were sealed and protected at the end of that age by the Romans represents about 10% of the wiped out, uh, you know, so just imagine in your own family, you have a family of 10, 10% get saved. That's not big. So you see a lot of people wiped out. The fact that as believers that they went through the tribulation, we could, a tribulation we could only have nightmares about, you see. So then I remind myself that after the vision of the 144,000 sealed, before the unleashing of the seventh seal, John says to us in verse nine, after this, now listen to what he says carefully. I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne of God. They're not in the lake of fire. They're not in hell. They're not in Sheol. They are standing before the throne of God and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palms in their hands. This is, they have victoriously overcome by and through Christ. And in this, I see the great and grand victory God has had through his son, Jesus Christ, that any and all of every ethnicity, every population, every tongue were clothed in white, standing there having had victory. John says the number of the multitude was so big, no man could have counted them. That's a huge number because men can count quite a few. You know, all you got to do is divide them up. And he says you couldn't do it. So when we read in scripture, few be there that find it. I can't help now, I've had a change. I used to think that the few be there that find it meant there's going to be a few people in heaven. I think it's all related to the house of Israel. And I think only a few of them, relatively speaking, found the way, Christ, their Messiah when he came, as evidenced by those who were destroyed versus those who were saved, the 144 in the book of Revelation. And all things considered, I personally have to see things this way, that in and through Christ, innumerable masses, innumerable masses, dressed in white, will be gathered around the throne of God. I call it total reconciliation. I think the whole world ever since, I think that's how powerful the victory was. And we'll talk about that again, but uh, uh, so when we talk about all the other uh, compartmentalizations of 144 and hell and lake of fire and hell giving up its dead and them going here, judged out of the Lamb's book of life. That whole history was written to them and that people of God working through that nation to bring about the victory to the whole world. I don't preach universalism. That says all roads lead to heaven. And that God, universal, well, I'll talk about that in a second. But bottom line, I'm not preaching that. I do believe that there will be many who suffer after life loss but I do believe God will reconcile all people to himself. And I think personally, this is what John has seen, that everybody is around the whole throne. We begin with 144, and now we have this whole idea of multitude, innumerable, dressed in white, uh, suggesting the body of believers over the course of all human history, I suggest. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And while I'm similarly convinced that all people will reap what they have sown in this life, I do believe that, Scripture supports that, at least from the sense of reading it uh, and what Jesus says about to the nation of Israel and to Gentiles. Um, the way it seems to me, take it for what it's worth, uh, 
is when we die, we all receive a resurrected body that God chooses to give us. That's scriptural. That resurrected body, just to use our way, might be five foot one. That resurrected body might be seven foot six in terms of spiritual capability. I believe he will gift that to us based off our sowing to the spirit. But all will be around in the end because of Christ, in different capacities because of his victory. Um, but there will be a reaping and sowing. John says, I then beheld and lo, and lo means what? It's a surprise, sort of like admitting a surprise. And lo and behold, right there in my front of my eyes was a red-lit batfish. It's a, whoa, what is this, right? Our attentions were just fixed on a relatively small number. Now, he says, I see this, and lo and behold, there are so many gathered. Before we had four beasts, and we had 24 elders, and we had the lamb, and we had the angels, and now, lo and behold, we got a whole bunch of people, innumerable, dressed in white all around. So the idea of few be there that find it doesn't fit with what John is telling us he saw in the future in heaven. Doesn't fit. So we have to understand why. We have to ask ourselves, how come? You would think that if it was gonna be consistent with Jesus' teachings, that John would say, and lo, I behold the few around the throne of God. And then from the pulpit, we would teach, there's only a few of you that are gonna make it. The 144 were gleaned out of the body of Israel, but there's only a few. Look at what's around the throne. But he says they're innumerable. Doesn't make sense to me. He says all ethnicities, tongues, peoples, proving that the good news was for all. And where were they? They were standing before the thronos of God. If they were standing before the throne of God, this suggests that they have been redeemed, reconciled, they've overcome, they are in his presence. Um, and there are three general views on how they got into his presence on, in Christianity today. I know this is meat, but this is a review as we'll quickly do it. The first review says that God is the one who has elected all of them to come around that throne. He has pointed to them. He has decided, listen, you're of your, it's not of your free will. It's not of your actions. It's not of your goodness. It's nothing you did. I have decided that you standing around the throne will be here. And uh, the five-point Calvinist then naturally infers that those God did not point to are burning forever in a literal hell of flames of fire. That's just it to their view. The one standing around the throne, he elected. They went there without any choice of their own. It was irre irresistible. They couldn't stop it. He pointed, they went. Those who didn't get the point are burning in hell, literally, figuratively, literally in bodies, with literal flames torching them as they scream up to God. And the Calvinist view is God glories in this. That by his mercy he shows to some, he is glorified in the fact that he tortures others. I hate that doctrine, hate it. I can't, uh, I don't wanna be a Christian, sorry. If that's the doctrine, count me out of that group. I cannot believe that a just good God would work it that way, doesn't make sense. The second view is the Arminian view, which says God really, really, really wants all men to come to him, gathered around in innumerable numbers, and he's a good God, so he gave us all free will, but unfortunately, that free will operating under the fall and our inability to know everything causes us to be rebellious. So he can't step in and impose on free will. So his hands are kind of tied. So he's an inept God. 
he's, uh, he can't really perform. And even though he wants people to come to them, he can't do anything about it. So boom, they're gone. So the unspoken implication to this is God created human beings. He subjected us to the effects of the fall, knowing before he created us that the world was going to fall and most of us weren't going to choose him, but he went and did it anyway. Therefore, in Arminianism, most are going again to burn in hell. They're going to be burning in hell and the ones gathered around the throne would be few. That doesn't consist with what John says here. John says it's innumerable. The third view is Christian universalism. And that says that God through Christ has had the victory for all men, and therefore all will be saved from afterlife loss, no matter what. So what we have here is universalism and Calvinism are really a despotic God. That in Calvinism, he's a mean despotic God, and he says, you're going to be saved, and it doesn't matter what we do, we are, uh, we, uh, you will or you won't be, but in Christian universalism, he points and says, all will be saved, and it doesn't matter what we do or what we are, we all will be. Both e eliminate the freedom of choice, and they just make God a despot, except the universalist feels better because God is a good God, and he just points to everybody and says, come on up. So what we do in this life does not matter at all to the Christian universalist. It's God saying it's my way, and there is really no highway. It's just my way. The Arminianist view fails in my estimation because man's limited choices and abilities keep God from getting his desires that all would come to him by faith. So to me, there's that fourth biblical view, and we'll just touch on it quickly, and that allows for God to have his will, which is that none would perish. That's an imperative will. None will perish. None. And that means I will have this occur. That's biblical and scriptural, 2 Timothy. None will perish. There's another passage that says, I would have all be saved, but that is not in his imperative will. That's what he would love to be, but it's not going to be because he gave us free will. So we know not any will perish according to that view. And in this view, total reconciliation is what we call it. The God is a loving, God is a loving uh, creator. He gives us free will amidst factors of the fall, genetics, nurture, addictions, knowing all of this will play a role. And they all are configurations that play into the human experience. And by his foreknowledge of all things, he allows all human beings to will to choose what they want to do and what they will do working out all things for good and an expected end to those who love him. Those who desire and seek him will find him, those who don't will not. The spirit is calling to all since Christ. That's how big the victory was. However, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And as scripture says, no man can confess that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. So if every knee is bowing and tongues are confessing, they are confessing by the Holy Spirit. No man can confess unless it's by. So that increases the number gathering around that throne in my estimation. What they go through to get there, who knows? Since the wrapping up of the age of all things relative to material religion here with 70 AD, what John is talking about in Revelation, with Jesus having had the victory over all things, um, all will ultimately come to Christ bowing and confessing. Those who did so freely and of their own desires while in this life will have that opportunity while here to die to the flesh. 
They'll have that opportunity to sow to the Spirit. They'll have that opportunity to not build uh, their houses on sand, but on the foundation of rock. They will, because they chose to humble themselves here and not live after the things of this world, have a kingdom there. Those in this life who refuse to be part of that won't have so much of a kingdom. They might be the one of a lower resurrected status later. They might be one on the other side of the tracks where the mansions aren't so nice, however we want to try to see it. But remember, God is just. He is fair. He is good. So we don't have to worry about crack babies and what the fate for them is. He understands. We don't have to worry about the Africans. I just talked to somebody the other day and they talked about how their preacher was saying, you know, we got to get to Africa. got to send people there because if we don't, they're all burning in hell forever. And I mean... He understands all this, but those who reject him in the flesh will reap in their resurrected body, gifted to them by God. This is scriptural, what God decides to give them as their eternal home hereafter. Therefore, since the destruction of material uh, religion in 70 AD, all men and women who have been saved from their sin, uh, excuse me, not who have, all men and women have been saved from sin. Christ's victory is complete. He is the savior of the world. Uh, the question is, what do people do with it now? That's the question. That is the question. What do you do with the faith uh, that you have or the lack of faith? That is the question. Some will be resurrected to bodies of honor. Some will be resurrected to bodies of dishonor, the end. So as we read in Revelation 5, there was God on the throne, the one God, and the lamb was in the midst of the throne. They were in white robes. No, this is in Revelation 7. And they were waving palms and as the ancient practice was done for victory. Now let's read verse 10. And they cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God. Salvation to our God who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Okay? Another translation puts it this way. And they were crying in a loud voice, salvation be ascribed to our God who is seated on his throne and to the lamb. Again, I'm sorry, can't let it go. Can't ignore that here in Revelation from the mouths of the saved hosts gathered around the throne that the cry is salvation be ascribed to our God who is seated on the throne. That's singular, singular, singular. And, and, and to the Lamb. Notice that, all right? Got to be so careful, in my opinion. I'm going to be bold. Might not see any of you again. Love you. Uh, be very careful of the idol of creedal Trinitarianism. Be very careful of that idol. Because it takes what I see as clearly explained in Scripture. It's not that Jesus wasn't God in the flesh. It's not that the Holy Spirit isn't God speaking, but just be very careful about the idol of Trinitarianism, which has created this amalgam of three and one and one and three, which no one can really understand, and said, here, worship this. Make this the thing that you stand on. When, when I read passages like we just read, it speaks so clearly to my heart and mind about what it's saying. We also note that the masses ascribe salvation to our God who is seated on his throne, but they, they say and, and. They say and to the lamb as well, okay? So let me just take the lamb term really quickly here and just use it literally. The host cries salvation to our God, meaning the author 
of salvation sitting on his throne. And he is the provider of the plan, the implementer of the system. And those who we call to that one true and living God and salvation has been attributed to what scripture John calls the lamb here. So let's just say that this is an actual lamb. So we'll just take Jesus and make him as an actual lamb. And that God, the one God sent an actual lamb to walk among the sheep and goats. And that actual lamb was made just like us, woolly and ears and the whole thing. And, but that actual lamb didn't follow the herd. That actual lamb did what he was told to do by his father. He's the only lamb the father ever had on earth, filled with his spirit. And that lamb went about, and then when it was time, gave itself up to be slaughtered. Its blood shed, the lamb of God for the sins of the world, and overcame the grave, and rose up on the third day from the grave, and was the savior of all goats and sheep and fish and birds. It was the savior of all creation that lamb. Attribution for salvation is given both to the one true God to whom we worship and serve on the throne and the lamb, his only human son. At verse 11, we see a repeat of what we've seen in previous chapters. I'm going to cover them quickly and we'll wrap it up. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders. There were 24 of them, remember, from chapter 5. And the four beasts, which are under the throne, remember those creatures. And they fell before on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor, power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Singular. Now, this is really important. In Revelation chapter 5, we see a similar scene. John brings to us a similar scene. And this time, the worship is to the Lamb. And the Lamb is the one who is receiving, and, the, and it says at chapter uh, 5, verse 12, the uh, angels and the, 12, uh, and the 24 elders say, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. All right? As the only begotten, the only human son who overcame the law, sin and death, this was appropriate praise. He did it in order to receive uh, glory, power, honor and blessing. That's what John says there. What's the difference in what, how God is praised? God is praised here in chapter seven. The lamb was praised in chapter five. The lamb was praised that he did all this in order to receive these things. God is praised as possessing these things. You see the difference? So God said to the lamb, but not to God, just to compare the two, he was slain to receive. And there's two words that were used there that aren't used to God in the second time that God is worshiped, riches and strength. The lamb was slain to receive riches and strength. We do not see riches and strength given to God on the throne here by the, by the masses who are worshiping him. They don't mention those two that are given to the lamb. Why is there a difference? Well, one, he was slain. Two, and by being slain, he was going to receive. And you see, the one true God doesn't receive riches and he doesn't receive strength, okay? Said to God, but not the lamb, that unto our God be thanksgiving and might forever and ever. Those two 
adjectives are not given to the lamb that he would receive thanksgiving and might forever, forever. Uh, look at those terms carefully. Jesus the lamb was praised because he was slain. The only true God was not slain. God in him was slain. And because he was slain, he would receive riches and strength, dunamis, which means the power to do grand miracles. That's the power. It's different than just all the times power is used. The only true God was said to receive riches and strength too? No, he wasn't. And it wasn't, he wasn't said that he was slain so that he could receive these things. He already has them. So to the God, the host say unto him, be thanksgiving and might. This power, this control, right? So, but the praise unto him means he has or possesses and not that because of anything he did, he would then obtain or receive thanksgiving and might. See the difference between the two? Very big difference of form of praise between uh, the God the, uh, who sits on the throne and the lamb in Revelation chapter five. So both are praised in heaven for uh, salvation coming to men, but they are subtly praised in a significant uh, and different way. Questions, comments? First of all, uh, I'm somewhat interested in this 148,000 because of my great-grandfather. Uh, but I was taught in the Mormon church, and tell me if this is your concept of what the Mormon church teaches, that the 144,000 would be individuals that would be called in the latter days at the coming of Christ to be special missionaries, to go out to the world for the last time. You've not heard that? If I'm weak on anything with Mormonism, it's their eschatology. I don't know what they believe. Okay, well, that's, that's essentially what I was taught. Now, getting back to my grandfather, who was numbered among 144,000, part of foolish genealogy. If you look at uh, chapter 14 of the book of Revelations, it talks about the 144,000 and says that they will not be defiled by women, that they will be virgins. He was a polygamist, <laughs> hardly a virgin. Interesting. Thanks. I look forward to getting into chapter 14 and seeing what else we learn about them. Thanks, Ray. And we're going to... To Carla. Okay, the belief I believe, I'm not saying I believe it, but this is a belief I think the futurists would take, and that is that that 144,000, I can agree with what you're saying, maybe it that's just symbolic. But this group of men would be missionaries that would go forth during the tribulation. Um, 
I think the last three and a half years. And that's a little different than Mormonism. And I think it's different from what you think. Oh, definitely. And the one thing that you said that I wanted to ask about is you said that they were innumerable and John, you know, couldn't even count them. Do you realize how many people um, could, could be in the narrow way? It could be so thousands and thousands. It, it could just represent lots of people. So you, you think that was more of a, the narrow way representation rather than all? Yeah, I yeah. think we're saying the same thing and I love the lesson, so thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Anybody else? Thank you for those insights, Carla with the K. All right, let's get out of here, let's pray and, and go. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your spirit and we thank you for life. And um, we pray that um, you will help us to reach everybody with the good news of Jesus Christ as it will benefit them tremendously. Uh, if they don't have the truth and think they're free, they're not. Uh, we only know that is the truth that sets us free, not lies or falsehood, but it's the truth. And we know, Lord, that when you came and walked upon the earth, you said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so we suggest that strongly from our hearts that